This is A Drink with a Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Seth Haynes. Seth, what are you drinking today? Well, as you know, Tish, I feel like death warmed over. I do not have COVID, but I have its cousin of some sort. I don't know what that even means, but I have all the symptoms without any of the positivity and I've been vaccinated, so I clearly don't have it. But that said, as a result, I have been drinking nothing but water. I have lost my taste for everything. I don't care about food or drink or anything. So Wait, I'm just drinking really water. lost your taste? Not not my actual taste. Not, okay, no. Good. Again, not to be confused with me actually having COVID. Because <laughs> I, I was going to say. Um... <laughs> I yeah, I don't have an appetite. Okay. I'm so sorry. I don't have an water, appetite. Water's where it is then when you're Yeah, sick. water's where it is. I don't have an appetite. I don't have a taste for anything. So I'm just draining that water because that's what I'm supposed to do. So says the doctor. Yeah, I'm sorry. You feel bad. That's it, no fun. Oh, it's the worst. I haven't been sick in an entire year since we've been wearing masks. And right. you know, the month I take my mask off, I come down with a wicked cold. I don't think it's probably that uncommon. It's a real thing. We had it go through our family um, a few weeks ago because we had a kid go to camp and they did not wear masks for some of the time. And <laughs> he came home with a fun cold that went everywhere. So anyway. It happens. It happens. All so right. Tish, what are you drinking today? Well, it is full on summer in Texas now. So I switched to iced coffee. I don't know if we've talked about our feelings about iced coffee. I have mixed feelings. Um, I don't like it first thing in the morning, but I like it later. So I'm drinking iced coffee. Have you ever had nut pods? Yes. Nut pods are kind of amazing. So I put some hazelnut nut pod in it. I don't know if that's a noun in that way that I used it correctly. Um, it makes it it makes iced coffee much better to me because I don't like straight up iced coffee. Like I, I like hot coffee, black, but iced coffee with something in it. Yeah, I think that's uh, great. And is it nut pod or nut pods? Because then how do you singularize <laughs> it? That's a really weird. That's what I'm saying. It, I think it's nut pods. But if you say a, sh- a sh- splash of nut pods, I don't know. It just sounds gross it's all weird. around. The The word. It sounds like I'm insulting. Like it sounds like something you would call someone on the playground, a nut pod. Right, but doesn't anyway. the, again? I think this goes back to your Anglophilia. Uh, doesn't this? <laughs> doesn't this actually sound like an English insult? You nut pods. It does. It one hundred percent does, and it just sounded hoity-toity when you said it there. So um, that's what I bring to the show, hoity-toity. Now I now I feel fancy. Okay, well, speaking of fancy, we've got a third friend <laughs> around the table. Today, we are joined by the lovely Sean Smucker, who is a writer, but first and foremost, a friend. So, Sean, by way of saying hello to you, what are you drinking this afternoon? Guys, this is amazing. This is like the highlight of my month to be here with you. Um, I am drinking vegetable juice, and I'm not going to say I love it, but so I have this (laughs) juicer, and... Every once in a while, I go through spells where I will throw all the vegetables into the juicer, and that is my drink um, because it makes me feel great. Honestly, when I'm juicing, mm-hmm. I'm drinking vegetable juice regularly. I feel so good. I mean, it gives me energy, and my skin clears up, and I don't know. Yep. I just feel really good. So I'm in a spell right now where I'm where I'm doing that on a daily basis. Do you do any vegetables? Like, can you handle any of them, or are there some that you're like, no, that that's wrong? Um, well, I usually do carrot, celery, cucumber, and apple mm-hmm. to kind of add a little sweetness to it. 
some sort of greens. We have beets right now, so beet greens, um, which are actually sweet too. Okay, because I've done beets before, but it tastes like dirt to me. So maybe I'm doing it wrong. I've never done beets, so I don't know okay. about that. But the greens are actually fairly sweet. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we've done beets before, and they do taste a little bit like dirt, Tish. But I think that's the idea, kind of. Like if you're a, <laughs> you know, like you're an Anglophile. If you're a dirtophile, yeah, just throw some of those beets in there, and then you get all the, all the dirt you want. Okay, can I just say to both of you, like Sean, we're Seth and I are both forty three. How are you in your forties? You are right. Yes, okay. I'm forty. I'm forty three as well. I turned forty. No, huh. wait. What am I? I'm 44, and I turn 45 in December. Wow, okay. I thought I was 43. Shoot. I'm so sorry. That just ruined your day. Huh? <laughs> um, no, I bring that up because I listen to another podcast where they talk about what they're drinking, and they're like in their late 20s, and it just makes me laugh because they're always like, here's the cocktail I decided to invent. And, you know, it's it's like some sort well-sourced bourbon and stuff. And then most of the time on the show, we're drinking stuff like vegetable <laughs> juice and water. <laughs> it's just, just funny to me. Uh, Welcome to middle age. Anyway. Okay. Well, we've got, um, Seth, I know you're not feeling great. So chime in when you can, but we're talking with Sean about one of our favorite topics really. And that's stories. Um, just stories of all sorts. I, we are blessed to have a listenership that loves stories and books and um, really sees that as kind of our go-to favorite, I guess you could call it hobby, but almost like a thing that we do to add more beauty and, and oomph to our life. So I would love to just hear from you, Sean, what it is about stories that just gets you up in the morning as a person more than a writer, really. Yeah. Wow. What a question. I, um, Miley and I have been talking a lot about stories recently, just, uh, I mean, more than usual. And it's, I think because we've realized that we've, we've in a way sort of dedicated our lives to stories. And at some point you, you do wonder, you know, when you're in your midlife, have I, am I doing the right stuff? Like, am I, you know, am I on the right path? Um, but I just, I don't think you can go wrong with stories. You know, I, I, for me, stories are, they're just this this way that we all communicate to each other. First of all, at a really basic level, we have this dinner club that we go to uh, about once a month. We've been doing it for, with the same group for 11 years now. And what do we do? We sit around and tell stories, you know, like as humans, mm -hmm. that's, that's how we want to interact. That's how we want to relate with one another. And so at a real basic level, it starts there. But then I think when you get into the creation of stories at sort of a larger communal level, you, you become part of this big conversation and you, you contribute. This is like, this is what I have to bring. This story is what I have to bring. And then you listen and you hear what other people have to bring. Um, I, I just love how stories are the way that we interact with each other at every level of community. Mm. I want to know more about this dinner club. What, how did the, I mean, I don't want to rabbit trail because, you know, stories, but how did that start? And yeah, you're exactly right. That's how we communicate with each other is through stories. That's how we catch up with our friends. We moved back to Pennsylvania from Virginia. I grew up here um, and Miley and I had four kids at the time. We moved back here in 2000 and at the end of 2009, we were not in a great place. My business in Virginia had failed. We were living with my parents 
And uh, my sister had heard that we had done a dinner club in Virginia for the four years that we lived there. And so she was like, hey, let's start one here, you know. And so we got together with her and my brother-in-law and then three sets of other friends. Two, one, one of those sets of friends went back since I was a little kid. Um, I had known her for, you know, 30 years, 35 years. And then the other two sets of friends were relatively new to me. Um, and so there were five couples and we just decided we wanted to get together once a month. And it, it was really funny because at the time we were all homeschooling, we were all self-employed and we didn't even realize it. It just, it just sort of happened that way. So we were excellent supports for each other. Now we all have teenagers. It's one of those things where, you know, we get together, we just start talking, telling stories about our week, our month, like what's going on in our lives. And before you know it, it's 12, you know, it's one in the morning and we're Mm -hmm. like pulling ourselves away. Oh, I really got to get home. I have to get home. But it's amazing what you can build with not a lot of time. You know, you're talking two or three hours a month. Um, But when you do this over an extended period of time, it's like anything, right? It's like exercise. It's like writing. It doesn't take a lot of time. And if you do it consistently over a long period of time, the the roots grow really, really deep. Mm. I've got a good friend, and I think this ties into the idea of stories. I've got a, a, a client, actually, that I've worked with for the last, I don't know, five or six years. And he's an older guy, um, I guess in his 70s now. And he tells me stories about their first sort of dinner group. And um, they were all really, really poor, like dirt dirt poor. Um, lived on the river, like ate out of the river, like this kind of up. This young adulthood anyway. And so he said that they would all get together, uh, very poor, would all get together and just kind of bring what they had. You know, if, if you were a hunter, you would bring meat. He lived on the river, so he would bring fish. Um, somebody would bring rice. Um, and he said, you know, you would always come together with like whatever little meager offering you had, and then we would all eat. And he said, you know, it was amazing how much you can sustain each other when you're you're sharing even the cheapest food. But then he said, but what's even more amazing is how much you can be sustained by the stories that you tell around those tables and, and the history that you share and uh, the ways you get to know each other. And I think as a born storyteller, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but as a storyteller, like there is something about a table, you know, like being drawn to the table because at the table it feels like that's just like the perfect place for storytellers to sit down and ply their trade together, you know, ply their craft. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something to me that goes kind of hand in hand with uh, the table, with food and with stories. Oh yeah. That's, and I love what you said about everyone just bringing what they have. When we first started this dinner club, we were super organized, you know, it was like, okay, you're bringing the main, you're bringing the appetizers, you got the dessert drinks, all this. And at some point during the years, like we just didn't have time for that and didn't have, you know, the space to be that organized. And now we just say, hey, this is where we're meeting. This is the time. Bring what you can. And mm-hmm. ev- and, and it's like everyone brings what, what they have, you know, and what they want to bring. And some people like to bring fancy food and fancy drinks and other people just bring like a salad. But um, it's always enough. Like what you bring to that table is always enough. And it's the perfect metaphor, you know, because whatever we come to the table with that night storytelling wise, um, emotionally speaking, you know, whatever we bring, that's enough for that night. Um, there are very few nights that go by where we don't 
at some point someone's crying at some point we're laughing so hard. Like you feel like your gut's going to split. Um, it's, it's such a great group and mm-hmm. it's not because of, it's a great group, but not because of like the greatness of the people. It's like the, the consistency and the willingness to be there for each other, I think is what, is what makes it great. And Sean, I like what you've said about that. That's the basis of friendship because storytelling, I mean, because it reminds me of a few weeks ago, I went to a new to us friends dinner party. So she was having a birthday party and it it was just her excuse to get together with people. So we knew almost no one, Kyle and I, Um, it was just a few blocks from us, but we thought, sure, why not? And it was so delightful. And we literally had sandwiches like that. It was sandwiches and chips and that was it. So it was not there. It was not for the food. It was for the company. And I can't remember most of these people's names, these new people, but I can think of, okay, that's the guy who told that funny story about how he got his tattoo. And this is the person who used to live over here and now, you know, has this kid and, and that's how we get to know each other. And so I'm to this day, you know, several weeks out, I'm thinking about those people and what lovely personalities and and conversations we had just because of the stories they told. Yeah. 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 It's, it's such a, being available for people and in that way of sharing stories and, and sort of accepting stories is such a crucial part of being human. And I think that it's a big reason that we lose something when we don't have that face-to-face contact. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily anti-social media all the time, most of the time, not all the time. But (laughs) I think when we, when we sort of trade in this face-to-face contact for digital contact, um, we just lose so much. And, and sometimes the face-to-face isn't possible, you know, because of distance or whatever. And so you get what you can. But I think when we're not having that face-to-face, then we also, we sort of decide without realizing it, that we're not going to engage just with people that we have in passing. So the mail, the mailman pulls up and instead of going out and saying hi and taking the mail, I just kind of wait. Cause I'm like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to, <laughs> you know, have that engagement right now or I don't know. I, I feel like we we are withdrawing more and more into ourselves and we're less and less willing to like stop for five minutes and, and share a story with a stranger. Cause stories take time. You know, it's like if you were to listen to your mail carrier for five minutes, that's five minutes of your day. And you know, I'm, I'm not throwing you under the bus. I'm the same way. We think of, of people almost as commodities or, or like interactions as commodities do I have the time to invest and and be pulled away from that? And it's ridiculous when we when we're here debriefing about it. It's like, wait, these are human beings with stories yeah. to listen that are worth listening to. But yeah, we tend to do that to our own detriment. Yeah. So both of y'all, both you, Seth and Sean, are parents. I'm a parent too. I would love to maybe park at what it means to share stories with our kids and what your experience has been. Uh, Sean, I know you've written some books for kids. I mean, I don't know if they're YA or middle grade, or maybe you don't even know, but they're okay. Got it. (laughs) But so we've got those classic stories, but we also are lovers of stories on our own. What, what has been y'all's experience as fathers and embedding stories into your parenting? Well, before Sean answers that, I want to answer with a quick example. So my um, third born is a massive reader, uh, I mean, just literary mind out the wazoo. Um, he is 12. 
13 now, I guess. And I mean, 13 and, you know, going on, you know, college reading uh, level. Um, so like last year, he read Frankenstein, Dracula, Dune. Um, so he's reading like all these great old stories. I mean, it's just amazing. When he was 12, it was amazing. And and his name is Ian. Ian's love of stories was sparked kind of young, but like his love of reading was actually sparked when he was, I don't know, maybe six. And um, it was by a a story that I read to them out loud that I shared with them, which was called The Day the Angels Fell. <laughs> he loved yeah. it. It blew him away. The fact that you could do so much with a story. He was like, Dad, I didn't know you could like do this much with stories. And oh. then I got to tell him and share with him that I actually knew the author. And that author was none other than Sean Smucker. <laughs> so I, I think what's what's you know, been incredible to watch in his life is how the power of stories has actually shaped his imagination going forward. The things that he's interested in now are all story driven. Um, the ways he reads, the ways he interacts with the world are all through great narratives. And all of that was really sparked by my um, sharing a very particular story with him, which was written by Sean. Mm. Well, That's that'll cool. keep me writing for at least another 10 years, Seth. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's the goal. Ten, um, 10 years and 10 more novels. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really, really encouraging. I think with my kids, I just remembered when I was young and first read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and it like it blew my mind. And so with our kids from a really early age, we, just, we, we wanted to find – if they ever found a story that they loved and they wanted to keep reading, we were like, go. Just do it. Like I – you know, our oldest son was Hank the Cow Dog. I don't know if you guys have ever even heard of Hank the mm-hmm. Cow Dog. Oh, yeah. Our, so our oldest didn't, you know, he was kind of like not a huge fan of reading. And he found Hank the Cow Dog and was like, boom, there he went. And, you know, for some of our kids, it was Percy Jackson, uh, Harry Potter, obviously. You know, so for us, it was the goal was always to f- help them to find the stories that would really just engage them. I remember one time I, so when my, my oldest son was probably like 11 or 12 and he was always reading above his, like a little bit more mature than kind of he was. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to pull four books off the shelf and just see if any of these resonate. So I, I got like the outsiders, um, good one flowers for Algernon, which I completely forgot like some of the scenes in that book. And I was gonna my ask, kids yeah. <laughs> always, always <laughs> remind me of that now. They're like, oh yeah, dad, remember we were just little kids and you gave us flowers for Algernon? <laughs> and uh, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> and, and so we've really, Miley and I have been deliberate about, man, just trying to put stories in front of them that they will really enjoy. And then we, we also try to be deliberate about talking about those stories. So if we watch a movie together as a family, you know, we'll sit around for a half an hour afterwards and talk about, you know, what do you think the themes are? What does this movie say about violence? What does it say about um, women, masculinity? Like, I feel like if you can somehow engage your kids um, in, in pulling back the curtain when it comes to stories and, and, and sort of seeing, oh, wow, this is what this story is doing to me, for me, in me. Um, I think it starts to 
awaken a sort of fascination with stories, but also an awareness, which I think is really important of what stories can do, the power of stories. And what is this story trying to tell me or what, what message is this story trying to, um, you know, convince me is true. Mm-hmm. I like the point of that as, as parents, we act as sort of curators of stories um, because, you know, we have been around the block a few times longer and it's not that we know what we're doing and we make mistakes all off flowers for Algernon when they're too young. But I think there's something to be said about the wisdom we have amassed, you know, in our middle age, being able to use that to shape our kids' imagination or at least guide them in how they are invited to shape their imagination through stories. And I bring that up simply because there's so much out there now, right? Um, We can't possibly watch everything we have for streaming. We can't possibly read all the books at the library or play all the video games available to us. Like we never before in history have we had so many options. And most of it is really stupid. And it's easy for us to forget that it's hard to wade through. I mean, well, maybe it's not easy to forget because we deal with this ourselves, having to wade through to find, you know, the the needle in the haystack. But that is a service we can do for our kids is helping them find the stories that do form them the way we want to be formed. Something Kyle and I have been talking a lot about this year is this idea of how all of us, but especially our kids, are always being catechized by something. Like, that's just how the world works. We're always being catechized by something. What is it we're being catechized by? And if it's just a dearth of stupid books or endless memes or gifts that are fine in small doses, but they don't sustain us, you know, they're the cotton candy of, of entertainment, then I don't know, we do our kids a disservice as parents. That's not to like shame us or anything. It's just to kind of remind us of the the sobering holy work we have to do as parents with when it comes to stories, you know? Oh, totally. And there is so much good stuff out there. I think yes. I think the challenge is to not always be swept up in the new stuff, you know, like it's easy, I think for kids, like what their friends are reading or what, what their friends are watching, you know, it's just really easy for that to become sort of the default. Um, and same for us, right? Like what's the newest TV show? What's the newest movie? What's the newest book or whatever. And not that new things are, are, are inherently less than, but, um, there's just so much good stuff out there already that, I I like that idea too of curating and like what what can I point my kids towards that I know is good that I know will uh, challenge the way they think about things that I know will introduce them to a wide range of people places topics ideas um, yeah I mm-hmm. like that and as a high school teacher part of my job every summer is to you know basically decide our reading list for the next year and I've got. Hi, you know, I've I've taught everyone from 14-year-olds all the way to 18-year-olds. This next year I'm doing juniors and seniors, but part of what I've learned makes for a good teacher is not so much thinking about what stories do they want to read now, but what stories will they be glad they mm. read 20 years from now. So, they're all going to like whine about the Scarlet Letter being on the list. I mean, I am inwardly whining about Scarlet Letter <laughs> like why did I do this to myself? But I will be glad to they have read that and they will be glad to have read that. And I emphasize that a lot with these classic stories. Like, guys, you just read Dante's Inferno. That is a really hard old book to read and you did it. Um, You'll be glad you did it. And so I think that's true too. Not that reading and stories needs to be hard all the time. 
you know, I don't think old equals hard um, or has to equal hard, but that's just something to remember that the heart, the, the stories that have stood the test of time are worth wrestling with, even if they are challenging. I don't know. Seth, what do you have on your mind? Yeah. So Sean, I guess my question is, you know, you're, you, you love good stories. Um, You espouse the virtue of the old stories. Um, And yet you're actively creating new stories. Um, And so I guess my question is like, why do you do this? Mm -hmm. Because I am totally unhappy when I'm not doing it. Mm. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think part of it, part of it is that I realized, you know, maybe 15 years ago that I'm a writer just at heart, a storyteller. And so I feel like I have to do it, but, but, but still the question could be, you know, why do you then publish them or put them out there? If, you know, if new stuff is, is not always as good. I, I think one thing that I've always tried to do is to have my work rooted in something else, or at least to be aware of the soil that, you know, has sort of brought my stories to life. And so, you know, for example, the book that I have that's coming out soon, The, uh, the Way to Memory, um, that book came out of, I, I just became obsessed with George McDonald's The Light Princess for uh, like probably an entire summer. I, I was going to the Y regularly and listening to books on tape. And I listened to that book. It's only like four or five hours long. And I listened to it probably 10 times. I don't know, at least. Um, I just had it on repeat, like for the whole summer, because it, it just caught my fancy. I was so interested in it. And then I started to see how what he had done was actually really similar to Pan's Labyrinth um, mm-hmm. by Guillermo del, del Toro, the movie. Um, as far as it's really a, a, a fairy tale for adults. Um, a lot of George McDonald's books, you know, they weren't written for kids necessarily back then. And um, I think when you see what Del Toro does in a lot of his films, it's similar. It's it, they are fairy tales for adults. Mm-hmm. And so, coming into the writing of the Way to Memory, I just had that at the forefront of my mind was this idea of a fairy tale for adults. And so, I think to answer your question, Seth, I think what I what does bring value, I think, to current day work is if if um, if it somehow links us to the old stuff, the good stuff, you know, if it's a, if it's sort of a reflection, not necessarily a commentary, but maybe, um, but, but it, it, I, I always love to see the roots of a work. You know, if I, if I read somebody's work and I can see, oh, wow, that's really rooted in, you know, Dickens social justice stuff. Or if I read a novel and I think, wow, that's really rooted in what Steinbeck was trying to do in Grapes of Wrath or, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, if as writers we can somehow join into this this movement of creativity and of storytelling that's been taking place for for thousands of years, if we can put ourselves in that space where, um, I think it was Anne Lamont in one of her books who said the Gulf, you know, uh, or maybe she was quoting someone else, but that the Gulf Stream will flow through a straw if the straw is not at cross purposes with the Gulf Stream. Um, I think that's us, right? Like we're the straws. If we can align ourselves correctly, then all of the goodness of literary and storytelling history can flow through us. Um, and then you have something new, but it's mm-hmm. still kind of part of something old too. 
Amen. It reminds me of, you know, in my work as a teacher, it is like whenever we read classics, it is called the great conversation. Like that is the mm. term used for when you are choosing to read the books that speak to a greater story, that speak to that truth, beauty, and goodness that we all innately look for in everything we do. And so to call it the great conversation, I think, is not only like hauntingly beautiful, but then to participate in it as writers feels almost too much to bear. Like, mm. who am I to join in the works of Dickens and Aristotle and C.S. Lewis? And yet we have to keep the conversation going, I think, yeah, both by yeah. pointing to the old guys like, yeah, keep reading them, but also keeping the conversation going. Yes. And another metaphor, Tish, that um, has meant a lot to me over the last few years is the idea, and I can never remember where I read this to give credit to, maybe you guys will know, because I think it's pretty common, but this idea that like all stories flow into this great lake, right? All stories flow into this body of water. And some of the stories are like huge rivers, you know, like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Dickens and some of the writers and the stories are just tiny little springs, you know, like Smucker and Haynes and Oxenrider. But um, we're all feeding into that. And that's that's good and important work. That is good. And Sean, I have to say you were really gifted at encouraging those small stories in my experience, because I mean, first of all, you literally encourage people by writing notes. Like I, I still have my two Sean Smucker notes that you put in the mail um, because you do that. You you encourage writers. But I like that you you are a really great example of just sitting down and doing the work of storytelling. I mean, you've written a lot of stories. And I mean, we've got a Sean Smucker section on our shelves <laughs> because you're doing the work. And I just think of how many stories need to be birthed by those of us who um, need to remember it's okay to be a small stream instead of a Dostoevsky, um, just because those are the stories we've been given to tell. So you're good there's, at that. There's so yeah. many reasons to write, you know, like there, there are so many reasons to write. And and one of those reasons might be to make money and, you know, for for your story to impact millions of people. But um, there are a ton of other reasons to write besides that. And a lot of them have to do with doing our own personal work, our own inner work. Um, there's a lot of joy, I think, that comes when we commit ourselves to creativity. Um, so, yeah, there there are many reasons to write. Sean, when you were talking about the rivers and the lakes, it reminded me of the very, very end of Norman McLean's great work, A River Runs Through It. You guys have read this novella? Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm sure. Most, I mean, most have, but um, most, at least most of the people who love fly fishing and literature have. Um, <laughs> but that closing line is eventually all things merge into one and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. And it's just that idea that every contribution is in that great river. Some of those mm -hmm. contributions are yours. Some of those contributions are mine. Some of those contributions flow over the rocks like Tolstoy um, or Dostoevsky or Steinbeck or whomever, like the bigger, the, the bigger, you know, more rapid uh, words maybe flow over the rocks. And some of ours are under the rocks and that's okay. 
but there is a greater river, I think, to your point. And, and um, I love the Gulf Stream analogy. I love this idea um, of, the, of the river, the, the greater river, and channeling that greater river. And I think what I hear you saying is that behind your own work and behind your own words, um, that there is sort of a supreme force, a bigger force, um, a, a current, uh, a meta current of larger stories that you're trying to channel to today's reader. And that feels like sort of innately spiritual work to me. Is that is that fair? It is. It is fair. I think... Um... I wish I could remember that, you know, every day that I sit down to write because it, the days that I do remember that, I don't care so much about book sales and royalty statements and things like that. You know, I just, I see the work in front of me that needs to be done that day. Um, and I do it and I enjoy it and I love it when I remember that. It, it, it is spiritual work. And I think it connects us with so many things. It connects us with ourselves. It connects us with our neighbor um, it connects us with God. I think there are, um, there's just, like I said before, there's so many, there's so many good reasons to write, you know? And I think that we, I think that so many times we get discouraged because we're not experiencing the popular reasons, you know, or the, or the, the sort of the cool reasons to write, um, fame, fortune or whatever. Um, but there are so many other, so many other really good reasons. <laughs> I just pictured like the illustration of us, um, the three of us not being at the cool kids table. We're over here off to the side at the D and D table. Probably the, the stories are <laughs> maybe a lot more interesting and a lot nerdier and maybe less well-known, but um, all the stories belong in the cafeteria, you know, for people to choose from. Um, Sean, your new book that's coming out. I, for some reason, I thought it was another YA book, but you were saying it's a fairy tale for adults. So tell us a little bit more about it, like who you wrote it for and, and, and why, why we can't, we should be eager to read it this summer, which I already am. Yeah. So, um, it's called the weight of memory. And as I said earlier, it sort of sprung up out of this, uh, this feeling or idea that I got from, George McDonald's a light princess and one of my favorite movies of all time, um, Pan's Labyrinth. I'm kind of obsessed with death. If you've read any of my books, you know, that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I wanted to write a story where a man is grappling with his, his pending death. The story opens with a man named Paul Elias. He's in his sixties and he's just received a terminal diagnosis. He has any time to three months to live. Uh, he's raising his granddaughter, and he realizes that uh, he really has no one to to take charge of her if he would die. So he decides he's going to head back to the town where he grew up, which is like eight to ten hour drive away. And it's kind of a little island, like it's it's it, it's mostly actually a piece of land that juts out into a lake, but there's also a river on the other side of it. So it's always been really isolated. And he takes his granddaughter back there because he just kind of hopes that maybe he'll run into someone, you know, anyone who can take her um, from his past. But he gets there and he realizes that things have changed a lot. The island is called Nisa. And he realizes that it's not the way it was when he grew up. It's very abandoned. And his granddaughter starts, to, his granddaughter is a very peculiar little girl. Um, and she starts to see things. I mean, she's always sort of had a very intense imagination growing up, 
but she starts to tell him that at night a woman is coming to her room and she's going out with this woman and following her around the island and and that this woman has a task for her to complete and so he's kind of like torn between he mostly feels like she just needs to chill out that her imagination is getting away with itself but as the story goes on his granddaughter starts to know things about uh the passing of Paul's wife which uh happens 40 years before and so you start to learn the truth about his wife's death and um also uh, his sort of wrestling with his own final days. Um, I guess I'm always wrestling with my own death, to be honest. I think about seven or eight years ago, I wrote a book for a man who was dying of cancer and he, he did eventually die a few months after we finished the project. And ever since then, I've just been very aware of my own mortality and I have a lot of questions, um, unanswered questions. And so that, I think that's why so many of my stories dig into death because I, it's just my way of working through the questions. Mm. And that's a universal question. So I think any reader that picks that up can say, Oh yeah, I'm going to die too. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. It sounds phenomenal. It sounds up my alley. I love um, speculative fiction. I don't know how you both of y'all feel, but that, I think that's my favorite genre of literature. Um work that's grounded in the here and now, but is just a little bit of, you got to suspend belief, you know, you've got the paranormal, you've got the weird bumps, you've got the whatever. And that sounds exactly that. Is that what you would call Mm -hmm. it? I mean, is that sort of? Yeah, definitely. And I'm the same. I mean, especially I think Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane, when I first read that, that was, that kind of cemented for me how much I love those stories that happen on the margins of of what we would call reality. You know, like I think when we're a kid, we're much more in touch with that margin. We're much more open to things that don't make sense or Mm -hmm. things that might not be, or might be. Um, And then as we get older, you know, we, we sort of lose touch with that. But I think for me reading Neil Gaiman, I realized, wow, like I really love that. I love being in touch with, with what could be, with what might happen, with what, you know, like we don't know everything. I think in this age of science and the internet, we feel like we know everything. But I, I, I like how those sorts of stories remind me that I, I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that. And I think we've, you know, Tish and I have talked about this a lot. It's why I love the work of David Mitchell, uh, because his work is literary. So it's, it's great literary quality, but it also operates on that edge of belief and, and sort of, pulls together this entire world of of characters that sort of exists sort of on the edge of reality, which is really amazing. And and I think Mitchell does it in a really fantastic way uh, in which some of the players in the novels know it and most do not. Um, so there's that just really interesting little uh, twist to all his books, which I, I really love. And I think we, we have lost sight of that as uh, modern American writers. I, I feel like... Um, you know, the writers that are not from America, particularly South American writers do this and have always done this extremely well mm-hmm. um, with, with ideas like magical realism. And maybe this is why you like um, Pan's Labyrinth so much. Um, yeah. But just that idea that like, just because we're adults doesn't mean that we don't need fantasy. It doesn't mean that we don't need the the magical or the fantastical um, because the truth is some of the most powerful metaphors come through, you know, suspending belief, 
Um, and so it just, you know, to me, the work that you're doing is super important. It is in that stream of great literature that sort of ask for suspension of belief. And I really love that. Tell me, as you think about your career as a writer, like I know most people listening to this are not going to be writers, right? They're going to be just everyday people, people who love to read, who love literature. That's, you know, probably why they're here to some degree. They've read something I've written or something that Tish has written and it's resonated. So, you know, we are a reader podcast here. People love to read. But for those who aren't writers, what are some of the things that you've learned um, in your storytelling career that just like the average everyday person who's not a writer could sort of apply um, to their life? Well, the number one advice that I always give to writers is to write a little bit every day and that that adds up, you know, to a lot eventually. <laughs> and and I think that that's so applicable to life, whether you're a writer or not, you know, if you exercising 20 minutes a day. Wow. You know, in three months, you're going to feel completely different. Spending a couple hours a month with a group of friends, you know, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, you suddenly have this group of of friends who who are family, you know. So doing just a little bit, it, it's not like, I think we get overwhelmed from good work or from doing things that we we really want to do because we just see the end result and it seems so huge, you know. Um, and for a lot of writers, it's writing the novel. Like, oh, how could I ever write a novel? You know, like a hundred thousand words. Are you kidding me? But in in working with writers and helping them to realize that it's two hundred words a day. You know, like Kate DiCamillo at the back of one of her books, multiple Newbery Award winning author, in one of her bios writes, you know, uh, where Kate lives in Minnesota, where she faithfully writes 200 words a day. <laughs> and you're like, are you kidding me? I could write 200 words in 30 minutes. Like that's, anybody can do that. And I think so many, so many of the things that we see as these lofty far off goals that we could never do actually just require, you know, 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day of consistent, of consistency, Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first one that, I, that I think writing is uh, the first way that I feel writing is really applicable. It's just that small steps. And I think the other one is, is Anne Lamott's idea of shitty first drafts, you know, like how many of us have been thwarted in the things we want to do because of our perfectionist tendencies. You know, mm-hmm. I like, I can't start a business. Like I don't have a perfect business plan or I don't have the perfect location or I don't have the perfect product or I mean, there're just so many things that we just end up not doing because we can't do it perfectly. And this whole idea of giving ourselves the space to revise, you know, like to to actually create something because I think that the initial creation is the hardest part. Like once you have something to work with, I love revision. I used to hate revision. I love revision now because it's like the hard work is done. Now I get to go have fun. I get to play with the story. I get to try and add in fun little things or find the themes and emphasize them or work in some motifs like that is the fun part. And I think a lot of times in life, whether it's writing or, or whatever it is, we don't get to the fun part because we don't give ourselves the space to create imperfectly hmm. for enough time. Um, it's just, and it's hard because we, you know, you, you hear the saying, like we, we only see the outside. So we don't see the struggles that people have gone through. We don't, you know, we don't get to see 
the rough draft of that number one New York Times bestseller. We just see the bestseller. So it, it, it is hard sometimes to give ourselves that space, but um, it's mm-hmm. so important. You know, both of those things you said remind me of Steinbeck. And speaking of, you know, the greats who who have the the currents in the lake we're looking at while we're just a stream, I think of him both as, you know, one of our greatest storytellers that but someone who surprises me with how unsure he was of his own work mm. the entire time, even when he had great success, he did not let himself buy a new. He lived in a horrible rundown house for decades until his wife finally made the move because he just felt so like such a hack. Um, and so the first quote that comes to mind, I've got it here about um, the idea of showing up and doing just a little bit of the work. He says, abandon the idea that you're ever going to finish. Lose track of the 400 pages and write just one page a day. And then when it gets finished, you're always surprised. Um, <laughs> I love that idea. And then he also says about uh, the editing process. Um, he says, write freely and as rapidly as possible and throw the whole thing down. Rewrite in process is usually found to be an excuse for not going on meaning like don't stop and edit yourself, just get it all down. Um, And then it interferes with the flow and rhythm, which can only come from an unconscious association with the material. And I think that's true too about whatever it is we're working on. If we stop and freeze from perfectionism about anything in life, you know, like I can't run a mile, so why bother running around the block? Then we kind of lose out on the joy of just being in the flow of it, the flow and the rhythm that comes from just maybe enjoying the thing just for the sake of it and not for writing the 400 pages, whatever that looks like. Oh, I love, I mean, I'm, have you guys read journal of a novel? Mm -mm. So this is Steinbeck's journal that he kept while he wrote the book East of Eden. Oh man. And he, he would write, what he did was he wrote one journal page on the left side. So he had this huge notebook that a huge online notebook And he wrote on the left hand page, he would write one day's journal. And he was basically writing it to his agent, who at the time was like one of his closest confidants in writing. And then on the left page, the left hand page, he would write that day's words for East of Eden. And so you go through this and it is, here he writes, and I must forget even that I want it to be good. Such things belong only in the planning stage. Once it starts, it should not have any intention, save only to be written. All is peace now. All is quiet. What little things there are, are here and good. Posture and attitude are so very important. Odd how reluctant I am to start. I suppose that everyone hates discipline and fights it off at all costs. I mean, some of the stuff that he writes in here, it's just unbelievable to think that, you know, someone who wrote East of Eden, Grapes of Wrath, like these were the things that he was struggling with as he was writing. So I highly recommend that journal, the novel. And then there was another one um, called Working Days, which is the same thing he did while writing Grapes of Wrath. Um, I like journal, the novel a lot better, but um, both are really good. I had no idea he did that. You know, to kind of wrap up this idea of stories and you having written a fantasy story for adults, it reminds me of another great writer who I love, G.K. Chesterton. And Seth, we might have actually talked about this quote on a recent podcast. It sounds familiar. But he says about, well, he says two things. One, he says, literature is a luxury. Fiction is a necessity. 
And with that, he says, and you probably have heard this one, fairy tales don't tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. And to me, that is ultimately why we need stories and that why fiction is a necessity, because we need reminding in our day to day that dragons can be killed. And I think adults need to remember that just as much as children. I think, you know, Tish, I've never actually processed this before, but you saying that makes me think that a lot of the reason that I write so much about death is that I really want to believe that death can be overcome. Mm. And I think that's why I write about it. I think that's why I write the kinds of stories that I write, not that, you know, we can live forever, but that the death can be overcome in the same way that dragons can be slain. And maybe that's why I, maybe that's why I wrestle so much with that particular theme in so many of my books. I think you're right. All right, Seth, let's talk a little bit about what beauty or good thing or truth thing, whatever. What is, what are you reading, watching, or listening to these days that's adding more beauty to your life? Well, I, I kind of feel like I've become the show's Instagram curator um, because it's really funny. Like as much as we all bag on social media, I want people to go use it for the right reasons, which is beauty, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there is a, a photographer that I follow named Evelyn Killerman. It's E-V-E-L-I-N-E dot K-I-L-L-E-R-M-A-N-N. Um, she's from Germany, evidently, and her photographs are like a study in color and light. Um, in fact, if she had a editing, you know, a one hour editing, like, you know, video that was a hundred bucks, I would pay for it. If it were 500 bucks, I'd probably pay for it. Her colors and her light and her shadow are just so good. Um, and she doesn't have just like a ton of followers. It's not like she's out there trying to like burn down the internet with her photography or anything. She's just doing really solid, quiet work. And I don't know how I ran across her is probably through some hashtag. Um, but the minute I saw it, I was like, Oh, I love this. It's mostly landscape stuff, a lot of flowers, a lot of trees, um, some animals. Um, but it, it's, it is really astounding work. Very cool. I'm looking at it right now and you're right. It's fun. All right, Sean, what in your life is adding more beauty to your days? So two things. One, I am listening to Elizabeth Strout's book, Anything is Possible. Hmm. Uh, She wrote, oh my gosh, drawing blank. Olive Kitteridge. Okay. I was just going to say Olive Kitteridge and then. (laughs) And Olive again. Yeah, Yeah, Olive again. Mm -hmm. Which are just, I love those books so much. And I've read some of her other stuff and I, and I wasn't quite as taken with it as I was with, with Olive, but I feel like with this one, anything is possible. She's kind of back into that. She has this sweet spot of writing short stories that are loosely connected that I don't think I've ever, I've never read anyone else who can do it the way that she does it with just giving you these flashes of a character in someone else's story. And then you read a short story about that character. And then you read another short story where that character crosses paths with the earlier characters and you like suddenly understand all this stuff. So um, I'm really enjoying that. I'm also reading this book called The Surrender Experiment, which is a very popular book I'd never heard of. 
by Michael Singer. It's nonfiction, My Journey into Life's Perfection. Um, it's like uh, he's Buddhist and it's all about life and like aligning yourself with, with the direction that life is going. But I found some of the things to be just so peace bringing when it comes to that idea of I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. This is what I'm, you know, this is what I'm shooting for. And then when those goals don't happen, um, we just keep like, you know, hammering our heads against the wall. No, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make this happen. And I found a lot of peace in the last few weeks since I started reading this in just sort of stepping back and reevaluating and saying, okay, what's working? What's like really working? Hmm. And, you know, what areas of my life have I just been trying to make happen for years and they're just not going to happen? So it's been a, a fun exercise in kind of thinking through the direction that my life is going and being open to new possibilities. Very good. Nice. All right. We'll add both of those to the show notes. So Tish, then now it's your turn. Tell us mm -hmm. what is one thing you're listening to, reading, watching, maybe consuming that is bringing a little bit of truth, goodness, or beauty to your life. Have either of you ever listened to the band Radical Face? Do you know who I'm no. talking about? Oh, good. Okay. So Radical Face is this band that about a decade ago, so it's not new, came out with this album trilogy. I say a decade ago. It started a decade ago, and I think they finished about five years ago. It's called The Family Tree. And I'm bringing this up to both of you because, first of all, it's fantastic music. Like, I, I love the music. You both would really like it, the style. Um, but it is such a stellar example of what you can do through all different sorts of mediums for telling stories. So the three albums are called The Roots, The Branches, and The Leaves. And so this is The Family Tree. And I'm going to just, the only way I can describe it is by reading a description. So I'm just going to read it to you. It's an ambitious, complex trilogy of albums telling the story of the Northcoats, a fictitious 19th century family graced with paranormal abilities, such as seeing spirits, reanimating dead animals, and other such things in accompaniment as if to show how far their vision will stretch. Cooper, the band's lead singer, has created an interactive map of the songs, which goes some way to revealing the interconnectedness of the albums, helping the adventurous listener follow specific characters through time as their genes tumble downwards. Um, and what I, the I, heck? So there's a, I'm going to put the PDF of the guidebook that goes with this album trilogy in the show notes. And you look through it and it's like old letters and creepy photos and maps. And you you flip through this as you listen to this music. And it's so good. It's so, so good. Um, that it's is fantastic. awesome. Yeah, you both would really love it. And I think listeners of this show would love it in particular. So that's Radical Faces Family Tree Album Trilogy. Um, and it's just great music. Even if you have no interest in the Northcoats, um, the 19th century fictitious family with paranormal abilities, um, you just like the music. It's really good. So there you go. That is that, so I, cool. I need I need that in my ears now. Yeah, you do. I'll, I'll send you all the link so you can listen to it right away. All right, guys. Well, it is time to wrap this up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com. And if you like what we're bringing to your week, you can actually help us keep doing this podcast by picking up our next round of drinks. The show is free for you to listen, but it's not free for us to make. So at the cost of a cup of coffee or a pint, you can help us keep the lights on. So to find the link for how to do this, look in the show notes of this episode or at a drink with a friend.com. And thank you in advance. 
You can find me and all my work, especially my newsletter and books at tishoxenwriter.com. Sean, where can people find you, especially your new book? Uh, seansmucker.com forward slash books, spelled S-H-A-W-N. Perfect. And we'll put it in the show notes as well. And Seth, where can people find you? You know, all the usual places where you can Google Seth Haynes, <laughs> like sethaines.com or at Seth Haynes on either platforms. But there is another Seth Haynes, you have to be super careful, who is a telemarketing seismologist and I am not him. Really? I didn't know that. All right. Just go to sethaines.com and you'll find all of that. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenrider and Caroline Tassell is our transcriber and assistant extraordinaire. I'm Tish Oxenrider with Seth Haynes and Sean Smucker. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. And oh, this was the highlight of my week. Thank you, guys. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Me too already. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back here with you soon. 